Hello and welcome to Ditch Finvox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, subscribe, let the algorithm know. My guest today is Benedicta Nolans. She is head of the Hong Kong Innovation Hub at the Bank of International Settlements, which is doing groundbreaking work on researching central bank digital currencies. I spoke with Benny about their latest paper titled Project Orem, that looks at both retail and wholesale CBDCs, both for Hong Kong and the world. Benedicte Nolens, welcome to DigFinVox. Hello. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm very interested in the work that you're doing at the Bank of International Settlements, the Innovation Hub in Hong Kong. You have been working tirelessly on issues around central bank digital currencies and just released a paper on a project uh, called Project Aurum. What's that all about and why are you excited about Project Aurum? Thanks a lot, Jamie. So uh, Aurum stands for, it's the Latin word for, for gold. Uh, and it is the project name that we gave to a central bank digital currency project in, in the retail space. Uh, so obviously central bank digital currency, what it is, it's in the retail space specifically, it's about the question of how do you make, for example, banknotes and coins as you know them today, how do you make them digital and will they be better if they're digital, right? Um, so our thought was uh, they can only be better if they're secure, right? So we, we, we used the word gold as the analogy for the need for these kind of tokens to be highly usable and highly secure. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. go ahead. So electronic, our money is already electronic um, yep. in that sense, uh, but using the traditional infrastructure. In Hong Kong, we've got the faster payment system, FPS, which like many other countries uh, or jurisdictions has introduced, um, you know, real time or almost instant domestic payments. Um, if I've got FPS, why do I need a retail CBDC? Yeah, so it's it's a very good question. And uh, I would say that uh, even the HKMA has been quite clear about the fact that no decision has been made necessarily uh, around whether Hong Kong will implement a retail CBDC. Uh, and just so you know, in parallel, we're also looking at wholesale CBDC and just in the last three hours, we just re released a report on that as well. So, um, but Hong Kong in the retail CBDC space has equally though uh, already issued three papers, three e Hong Kong dollar papers, each of which are linked in the Orem paper because they are foundational material to the Orem infrastructure decisions that we made. Um, and within it, the HKMA makes very clear that they do think uh, notwithstanding no decision having, having been made about a rollout, that it is incredibly important that Hong Kong understands what CBDC is and does the proper uh, applied technology research. And I would say that's where Orem fits in. And, and I would add that in that regard, Orem is quite uh, unique, I would say, in avant-garde. Um, it's it's unique because it's looking at two infrastructures. So normally when you look at the CBDC project, it's actually looking at typically one infrastructure. 
our architecture, so to say. Um, and in this ORM report, we set out the four possibilities. So and possibility number one. The, yeah. the double architecture, one is, one is wholesale and one is retail. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, no, actually here I'm referring to the fact that one token is an intermediated CBDC, the other token is a stable coin. And yes, the architecture of the system is to have a wholesale interbank system that is actually separated from the retail system. And by that separation, we do also create more cybersecurity. But for, for this purpose, yet even that is unique, as you're saying. But I think what is more unique is that it's currently testing two very different types of retail CBDC tokens. So that one intermediated token, what it means is uh, it is distribute it is central bank digital currency, meaning it is the liability of the central bank and it is distributed through the banks. Whereas the stablecoin, the difference is it is the liability of the bank backed by reserves at the central bank. So a backed stablecoin with CBDC reserves, which hasn't been on before, that's completely unique. But the liability is ultimately on the bank, right? Uh, now, with the architecture that has been built, um, the tokens can be traced even in ba bankruptcy. So if you're holding uh, these tokens and let's say the issuing bank of these tokens goes bankrupt, you will have the central bank as, as standing in. So in both cases, they're equal, you could say, in, in their value uh, in society. But the way they're implemented is very different because in the one case, it's coming direct through the central bank system. In the other case, it's issued by the banks. And the reason we wanted to look into this stablecoin structure specifically as a, as a bit of a test, and as I told you, applied technology research, is because we want to see if the banks see that stablecoin version as more flexible for programmability. So, I cannot answer that question to you today because that's going to be the next stage of this investigation is to now open up this architecture to the banks to a little bit play around with um, and, and give us their perspective of if, if they needed to make a choice, which one prevails over the other. And yeah. as I try to say, uh, these two are actually two choices of four choices that we set out in the report. So just maybe to quickly go through this, because it's important. People started with this concept of a uh, CBDC that is directly issued by the central bank to you, Jamie, as a retail person. The problem with that is that the central bank would need to do your KYC right, which central banks don't traditionally do. They delegate that task to the banking sector and to the BSPs, the SPFs in Hong Kong. They know you, not the central bank. Uh, so it's not the task they do. It's not the task they may want to do for that reason. And it's not the task you may want them to do because you may want your privacy to be kept in the private sector, the banking sector and the BSPs, as opposed to at the central bank level. So. The direct CBDC is something that was put out there as a concept two years ago, but very few jurisdictions are now actually um, doing that model or choosing that model. So the more preferred model they're going for is a hybrid CBDC or an intermediated. Now, the difference that the distinction we at least theoretically make between these two 
is in the hybrid, it's still the central bank that manages the whole ledger, meaning they can still see Jamie is Jamie, right? Whereas in, in the case of the intermediary, intermediate CBDC, which we actually chose for this, the, the link is there broken. In some, the wholesale system has no information uh, that, that links this token to Jamie. But the SCB, for example, can obviously uh, see the token through, through the chain of transactions and knows where the token has gone. SCB in this case being Standard Chartered Bank, for, for example, or it could be HSBC, it no. could be any commercial bank. Correct. Do you think that in Hong Kong, because of our, you, I'd, I'd say, fairly unique situation where we do have three banks that already act as currency issuers um, with a HKMA backstop? So my paper money has exactly. Or a BOC or a stand chart emblem, you know, they are the issuers. You don't have that in other jurisdictions that I've encountered. Um, so, is that informing some of the way that you have and working, I guess, with the HKMA or the banks have been sort of thinking about this? Yeah, so it definitely has because uh, at the time we started this work, in fact, there was still a lot of uh, questions around stable coins, as you know, right? So in some about, uh, we started this work early last year. So early last year, there was a lot of global policy discussions around whether stable coins are stable, right? And so you've seen, meanwhile, the collapse of Luna. So let's face it, some stable coins are not stable, right? But there is a range of stable coins. Luna wasn't a very good example there. there also, are... you know, it was based on just mathematical gamemanship with the algorithm, as opposed to having reserves. Then the next question exactly. is, reserves, right? Like who's got, who, what are these reserves and how do you prove it? Exactly. So, so even among private sector stable coins, there is the Luna example, not a good example. And then there is those that are backed by assets in a bank. But that's still bank counterparty risk, right? So if that bank goes under, then then technically your stablecoin is valueless if it's backed by assets in that bank. So what what this stablecoin structure tries to do, as you say, is mimic exactly the current note issuing uh, function of the three note issuing banks. They are issuing those notes and they're backed with reserves at the central bank. And so this is a digital, the, the stable coin. So option number four in the structure of the BIS options is actually the closest to the Hong Kong current model. So it's replacing that physical bill issued by the note issuing banks by a stable coin issued by the by, note issuing or in that case, stable coin issuing banks. How, how relevant do you think your work in Orem is for other jurisdictions? Is it kind of tailored for our market because of these characteristics that we've mentioned? Or do you think there's things that could be taken away in other places and they could take a Hong Kong-esque uh, inspiration or, or te technical blueprint uh, to other places? Yeah, so I think to go back to your question, the separation between the interbank system and then the wallet uh, already is something that is worth uh, for other other jurisdictions to 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 look at. Then the interbank system in this system is a DLT system as opposed to being a centralized system. Now, um, 
other jurisdictions can study these two models so they they could uh, take a look at our code because we will open this code up to the central banking community so the bis has 63 central bank members that are allowed to to access this code so they can contrast and and go take a look at some of the options of course also offered by vendors in terms of centralized models and contrast this with this dlt interbank system um, they can contrast, as I said, the direct CBDC with this intermediated uh, CBDC. Um, so the intermediated CBDC is what highly likely a lot of jurisdictions are ultimate, ultimately going to choose as the model because it protects uh, the privacy of the customers, as I told you, because your information stays where it is today is equally private or equally non-private. If if you think that a bank can't be trusted, it's not private. If you think a bank can be trusted, then it's private, right? So the intermediate model is exactly the same as the current system. Um, the the stable coin, the, the learning there, in my view, for why it can also be very useful, um, in fact, really useful for global studies, is um, is because a, it's unique, it hasn't been done before, and and secondly, that that backing by CBDC is is what makes that study here unique. Because as I said before that, what you had is those algorithmic tokens, as you know, one blew up, and then you have those backed with money in a bank. But you don't have those backed with money at a central bank, the reserve backing. That's unique in, in Aurum. What is the level of, I guess, distribution in your distributed ledger technology that you're basing your studies on? Like, is it just a club with a couple of banks? Is it really DLT? Or is it something that leverages uh, a broader reach to create something that looks, you know, begins to look more like an Ethereum or, or something out there in the, in the in the public permissionless sector? So the answer is it's a DLT and it's not a public uh, blockchain. Um, so yeah, that that is a, a choice uh, made, mm -hmm. um, and and that's because ultimately there is a need here to to comply with many things, including the including the AML aspects, right? So you want that that CBDC to to circulate only in in approved uh, wallets, and and that's how this infrastructure is set out. So okay. yes, it's it's not if you're asking implicitly whether this is comparable to cryptocurrency. I always caution to compare these two because a cryptocurrency is by nature made to, to be uh, circulating very freely in the, in the universe, right? Uh, but it also has EML um, risk to it, or or uh, in some it may not be EML compliant. To put it very simply. Uh, the the other thing to to point out, and and it's something that daunted on me uh, much more recently as as a customer myself, is it's not just about EML, but it's also about fraud protection. So if something can can circulate very freely without KYC and all of that stuff, uh, the fraud risk actually also rises in tandem. So in some, if you get defrauded, uh, very unlikely you'll get your money back in a completely un-KYC and, and unregulated system. So it's a trade-off to be made in the in the choice. And and but yeah, I think it's it's sometimes a bit dangerous to compare them because they will not serve the same functionality if, as you imply, they're built on different technology. What is the 
interoperability. I, I, I hate that word because it's so clumsy, but it, it is sort of like the key word for a lot of these things. Um, if I wanted to take my e-wallet, my EHKD or, or other currency, and then I travel or I want to exchange it for something else, is that going to be possible in this world? Uh, what will what will the cross-border aspect <laughs> of this look like, do you think? So I have to answer, we have two other projects for that. <laughs> <laughs> so Dunbar no kidding. <laughs> no, no, actually, so for 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 typical uh, wholesale payments being payments made through the banking system, we actually do have indeed uh, the Enbridge project, which is a wholesale payment infrastructure. So the idea is that uh, banks join a platform on which central banks are also on the platform uh, and the central banks at the request of the banks issue CBDC, uh, wholesale CBDC, so that the payments can indeed be instant on the platform. So and, and cross over to the other part of the world very efficiently and without the need actually for these correspondent uh, relationships, which are dwindling in, in number and in coverage. So that's one aspect of CBDC. Uh, sorry, of cross-border CBDC, but you would say that's in the wholesale uh, context, right? Whereas you were just asking if me, Jamie, if I go travel to Thailand, right? So we do have another project for this called Icebreaker. So you can take a look. It was just announced about a month ago. Um, and it's not handled out of my center. It's currently a collaboration between uh, Riksbank and Israel and also uh, the European Center. And uh, their people are looking at that exact question is how do retail CBDC wallets interoperate uh, in the future? Uh, within within a Hong Kong context, this has been brought up as a question because often, for example, Hong Kong people do go travel to Thailand and they would like to have maybe a Thai CBDC in their wallet. So it is a it's a completely legitimate question. I think it's maybe a little too early to answer it. And 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 the reason is because until we decide on on our own uh, retail CBDC um, architecture and model it's too early to actually decide how you're going to interrelate with the other. But just to go back to Enbridge, uh, Enbridge is something that on the other hand, I consider interoperable by design because what it does is it brings central banks together on one platform. So you're on one platform, so you're interoperating your CBDC by design. I, I wanna go back to my original question about why this versus other advances in payments uh, that we're seeing in the region. So I asked about FPS, for example. Uh, but also in Southeast Asia, we're seeing a number of countries are allowing their citizens to basically interoperate with their own currencies through QR codes, right, and, and an app. So a person in Singapore can go to Thailand and they don't really have to do any conversion. They can just use their their SingPass and, 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 and operate as if it's bought and vice versa. And I believe this is being extended across a number of, of marketplaces there. So we've got these other initiatives in the fintech space that are doing you know useful things. Uh, so with CBDCs, what's you know what what's the pace that you're looking at here? Uh, you know wh where's the point at which these things become overwhelmingly useful, um, whether it's the programmability or other functionality uh, that that they will they will gain. Uh, you know, real traction and real critical mass. Yeah, so so I think, uh, let's say I'm never under any illusion personally, 
personally that change comes fast i've been around too long <laughs> so so i i think it would be a bit of an illusion to think that that these things come fast and even if they come fast that they they suddenly take over by storm of sorts i really don't think so um and in in fact i i think that if you look at the evolution of finance and that's where you're an expert it's always about multi-step so you're you're speaking about the qr codes but i remember 10 years ago i didn't have a qr code right and 10 years ago i didn't have a foster payment system in hong kong right what i did have though is my octopus card right and and i still use my octopus card and what i did have as well is cash and i still use cash uh i did also have credit cards and i still use credit cards but i also use the qr code and and maybe in the future i also want my money to quickly cross borders through you know let's say standard charter shooting these amounts to to another side of of the world quickly more quickly than in the current scenario right um and as you say, um, the private sector is innovating and, and should innovate, and it will continue to innovate. And if it innovates to an extent that these public infrastructures are, are not useful, that I would think is, is to a certain extent even a, a good outcome, because ultimately it is the user who decides as to as to um, what is useful for them, right? So I think it's it's fair competition. And as far as I can see, um ultimately where things end up is that you end up in a world where you have multi-offerings existing in tandem so i think that's been the story in general of the last maybe 20 years of your and my life right choice has everywhere come to our life in every aspect of our life and and so i think it is for finance as well is there's going to be more and more options for you um but ultimately, the ones who survive are the ones with the highest adoption. And the highest adoption is always defined by the highest, ultimately by the highest uh, user value. So again, I don't think there is something exclusive of one over the other. And I think we should all innovate in tandem and see which one ends up being the more useful. Uh, I would add as well that on your FPS point for retail, I think this is very critical. I think. Hong Kong, uh, a lot of people may not appreciate this when they're not in Hong Kong, for example, but I've been here 25 years. And uh, to me, I've had my octopus in my life 25 years, and I found it for 25 years equally useful as, as, as today, uh, for example, right? So, but the FPS system, yeah, it's absolutely amazing that you can just go on your bank interface and the money is with you in in a second and now you don't even need to go through the bank interface anymore and it's with you in a second all of this over those 20 years has materially changed so one of the projects we also have in the bisih is to connect regional fps systems that project is handled out of singapore and is called nexus so that would be another solution to the problem you see is to connect these already very well functioning FBS systems yes. um, and that could be particularly useful as you say for for the retail context and for the remittance context what do you hope to see in the next year uh, when it comes to further study and advancement on uh, the retail or the retail slash wholesale architecture for CBDCs 
Yeah, so I, I think uh, on wholesale, uh, we we just as said, issued an Enbridge report just three hours ago. Uh, we did uh, the first, you could say, global um, real value pilot on platform. What I mean is there was actual settlement of actual corporate transactions on the platform. So uh, 12 million um, CBDC was issued amongst four jurisdictions. Uh, 20 commercial banks participated, a total of 163 payments was made through the platform and these were real value payments. So a corporate needed to send money from Hong Kong to China or from China to UAE or from Hong Kong to Thailand. So, and in, in total in some, this even amongst these 20 banks in four jurisdictions, this platform enables, what it really enables is 150 connections of which more than 40 connections were established out, out of nothing really in, in less than a month. So the, the, let's say the interest of that kind of a, of a pilot is really in seeing how quick networks would form and how quick the, the network effect. And if, if, you, if you grew that out on a more global or a more regional level, uh, what value that would add. So I think uh, in some, we will continue that exploration. And I think it could be quite significant uh, if it is successful, that's on wholesale CBDC. On retail CBDC, um, you know, several countries have rolled it out. Your question on Hong Kong is very specific to Hong Kong because we have a very efficient FPS. We have a very efficient, as I said, wallet system, QR code system now with PayMe, et, et cetera. But many countries don't have that. We, we are just thinking about uh, the creme de la creme, which is the, the highly developed, the highly included. So for the much lesser developed and the much less financially included countries, that's where I'm seeing more adoption and much faster adoption of retail CBDC. So you see that, for example, Bahamas, you see it in Nigeria. So it's very interesting. So for wholesale, it's the hubs like Hong Kong, Singapore, they're looking at this wholesale context because that's their job in life is to connect wholesale across the world. Uh, whereas for countries that are facing financial inclusion uh, problems of, of individuals, they are faster at retail adoption, retail CBDC adoption. And so the, the key there for people to understand is that the difference between the banking system and let's say a CBDC there for financial inclusion purposes is that you don't need a bank account to have that CBDC. Much the same way that today you don't need a bank account to hold a bill or a coin. And that is very important. And then what is the potential difference then of automating that is that you can much easier track the credit record of that person. And credit to me is a bit like a virtuous cycle. It's if you see a lot of transactions go with a person, then that person's credit starts improving, right? That link you cannot establish with physical cash because you, you can't track it, <laughs> right? So the inclusion element is you don't need a bank account, much like cash. But the additional inclusion element is the ability of, of establishing a credit record much easier in a digital cash con context than in a physical cash context. Right. And if you're able to maintain some level of privacy while you're doing that to give people confidence in using it and just protect their basic liberty. Exactly. 
then then it, it can start and then you can you might have some programmability on top say uh distribution of pensions or something like that absolutely so there's definitely a lot of programmability uh use cases in social security in covid and in any types of uh, context like that. But again, they may not be directly relevant for one market and very relevant for another. Right, and obviously the, along with privacy goes a, a sense that people don't want governments sort of uh, using their, you know, using their digital cash to, to, to make them do things or not do things. Yeah, so so I think privacy is, is very significant. So to go back to, to Orem actually, as I mentioned to you, so the intermediated model is already uh, much more private than the two models uh, above. Uh, and on top of that, the in the wallet, the system that is being used is the UTXO system, which is actually the same mechanism as, as Bitcoin, which is, uh, which is, as people call it, pseudonymous. Great. I think we'll leave it there. We've had a long discussion. Um, there's a lot of exciting stuff. I think we're in the middle of something. Uh, we're not the beginning, we're not the end. Uh, so I think we'll maybe just leave the discussion also in the middle. Um, Benedicta Nolans from BIS, thank you so much for joining me on Digfin Vox. Thank you so much, Jamie. And I'll see you next week at FinTech Week. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Thank you, take care, bye.